You're listening to episode 402 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hey, Max, how are you? I'm doing well, David. I think we're going to have an exciting show this, uh, this week. I mean, and how shocked is our audience two weeks in a row? What are we doing wrong? Well, in the last episode, we mentioned the Domestic Counter Unmanned Aircraft Systems National Action Plan that was issued by the White House. And you'll recall that plan seeks to protect against the increasing threat of UAS in unauthorized airspace. And it calls on Congress to, quote, adopt legislation to close critical gaps in existing law and policy that currently impede government and law enforcement from protecting the American people and our vital security interests. Well, we wanted to explore this action plan in more detail. So we've invited Jeffrey Starr, the chief marketing officer at Defend Solutions, to join us for a conversation. Jeffrey, welcome to the UAV Digest. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you uh, for having me on. Now, of course, we've talked about Defend Solutions in the past, but as a quick refresher, Defend supports the growth of safe and secure drone operation and adoption, but along with innovative solutions that defend against rogue drone threats. Their technology has protected world leaders, gatherings, and organizations from the threat of rogue drones, including at the G7 Summit and championship sporting events. Now, the company's flagship offering is Enforce Air, which has been deployed worldwide at forward operating bases, borders and ports, international airports, federal government agencies, and many other places. So let's get started and talk about the action plan, then how it might proceed and what role stakeholders might have. But before we examine the elements of the plan, Jeffrey, do you feel as we do, that this plan is important? Uh, for sure. If anything, that's, a, that's an understatement. It's, a, it's highly important. I would describe it as a very long-awaited and very sorely needed. So um, absolutely, we're, um, uh, our, you know, our point of view is certainly that this is a very positive uh, initial step forward. Let's look at the plan. One element of the plan expands UAS detection authority. And I think that's really significant. Exactly. And maybe, you know, first taking a a big step back, uh, as I mentioned, um, it was long awaited, sorely needed. Uh, There's the counter UAS community is very excited about it. And like you said, detection is a centerpiece of it. There's a couple of other key elements as well. Uh, But first of all, I should emphasize that uh, the plan is very balanced in the sense that it acknowledges upfront the great benefits of the proliferation of our drone society, but at the same time, like you said, in terms of our own uh, vision and mission, uh, it, it also very establishes the heightened level of concern uh, about all the risks, the malicious actors, the potential to weaponize commercial um, drones. But the overall strategic goal is, is safeguarding the expansion of positive UAS activity while safeguarding against the malicious actors, but really guarding the the notable gains uh, and trying to make some gains in the laws and ground rules that'll safeguard the new drone society, if you will. Um, It's detailed, it's comprehensive, it's multifaceted, but there's some key elements. So you mentioned detection, exactly right. So let's start with detection. Um, 
I, I would call it, uh, the key word would, might be dev devolution, devolution of detection or extension of detection. Uh, what's really key about this is extending the detection uh, responsibilities or capabilities to the state, local, territorial, tribal uh, levels, what they call SLTT, state, local, territorial, tribal. Also, in a different way, extending these detection uh, capabilities to, um, to critical infrastructure sites. So we think this is really important because the, the local, the SLTT level, are tasked, even in the current situation, they have a lot of responsibilities where they interface with the threat of rogue drones. They're tasked, for example, with ensuring safety in many local environments, use cases and scenarios. Uh, for example, heavily populated mega events like concerts, uh, sporting uh, events, championship games, marathons, political rallies, um, they have to protect local landmarks. They have to protect local government buildings. They have to protect other local facilities where there may not be federal people who have the existing authorities there. So what's happened the last few years, as, as your audience knows very well, is the very easy accessibility and low cost of commercial drones makes them ready available makes them readily available for malicious or careless actors that could potentially cause mayhem at events like this, could cause damage to facilities, could harm the local population. Um, they can also be used at this local level in other nefarious ways to surveil uh, law enforcement, to attack local authorities, to, to target um, VIPs. Um, and also, for example, think when you have emergencies, local first responders uh, in dangerous uh, situations, they could be targeted. Um, they could be prevented from responding effectively. So really, it's, SL, it's the state and local law enforcement that sometimes is the only resource available to contend with and, um, and deal and prepare for such an incident. So granting this kind of, at least at the first step, detection authority to these local level jurisdictions, it's a big, big step forward. It expands the coverage, it expands the reach of the security activity against uh, rogue drones, and just the sheer numbers, locations, and resources of local law enforcement um, if they can employ these counter-UAS detection technologies, that would translate right away into a massive increase in the forces ready to contend with this kind of threat and heighten overall the, the nation, the homeland's uh, uh, readiness and responsiveness in, in confronting this rapid increase in incidents and attacks. But having said that, having said that, um, Extending the authority for detection alone is not going to fully address uh, the problem unless, in short order, corresponding mitigation authority, not just detection, but mitigation authority is also extended. And that points to really the, one of the other pillars of the plan. Maybe you're going to get to that. But, um, but I think, th in summary, the detection is a great first step, and we're looking forward to when, um, in a safe, proper way, similar authority is extended on the mitigation side. Well, certainly extending the detection authority to uh, to local law enforcement is a big step, a big change, and of course, then mitigation as well, and we'll get to that, I guess. But extending this, the, the detection is significant, and I guess that's why the plan also talks about a pilot program that involves the SLTTs, I guess for both detection and mitigation. Exactly. It feels like it's too soon to just directly hand over the resources to local law enforcement that they need for this, but we, we, we need to figure out how to train them and figure out how to manage it in, a, you know, in an appropriate way. 
No, that makes sense, and you're right. Uh, I'm glad you raised the, the pilot program. Um, so that that kind of reflects the the um, incremental or, or measured approach that they seem to be taking. The pilot program is is yeah the extension of the mitigation. The uh, envision they're envisioning it as a pilot program for expansion of the mitigation activity to the state and local level. So. They're recognizing that expanding detection alone would be limited without also, at some point, uh, having a roadmap or a mechanism to extending a complementary mitigation authority. And, um, you know, the reasons for extending detection to capabilities to state and local or to SLTT, they, for the most part, pretty much also apply on the mitigation side. So ideally, the these pilot programs, I think the important element of the pilot program that, uh, that the community will be looking toward is that they have some kind of clear performance indicators and success factors. So some KPIs, key performance indicators, such that if these goals are accomplished with um, that the lo- that these localized mitigation authorities uh, or, uh, approvals will, will be granted and will expand in scope, but exactly what you're saying, commensurate with the risk in a gradual way. And of course, um, training and everything else um, has to go alongside that. Jeffrey, um, continuing with the um, the detection point, do you expect to see any privacy concerns, you know, data management, et cetera, going forward? Or do you think that that'll be wash out quickly? Well, no, it's something that uh, they're certainly conscious of, and they want to definitely make sure that all practices and processes take into account uh, any concerns there. So any technologies, um, and uh, whether it be on the detection or mitigation side, should be really focused on the mission itself, which is, uh, you know, averting, uh, you know, making, keeping uh, the skies alert for potentially dangerous drones, and then mitigation, mitigating the drone capability itself the dangerous drone capability itself. In other words, it should be very clear the purpose here is not to uh, eavesdrop and the purpose here is not to see what other people are doing with their cameras or things like that. It really has to be laser focused on public safety, on um, detecting a dangerous drone that's coming into a sensitive or protected airspace, that it is a rogue drone and not a not an authorized approved drone, and then mitigating it, in, and we'll talk maybe about this later, in the safest possible uh, manner. So I, I think uh, it seems like they're doing a good job of um, making sure the plan can align uh, with both existing regulations and finding a way to, of course, safeguard privacy concerns uh, while also uh, safeguarding the public. It would seem, uh, you know, on that point, David, it, it would it would seem that a uh, effective awareness program would need to take place here because we we know people are sensitive to these privacy issues and drones. And we've seen it in the past with local law enforcement implementing drone programs without public awareness and then receiving this uproar uh, from uh, from the public. The backlash. The backlash, right. And so we'd, we'd certainly want to, uh, we'd want to avoid that. And the FAA has taken has has already actually taken some steps even before this plan. Uh, I mean, concepts like you know the remote ID um, and other initiatives by the uh, by the FAA are are a step to kind of allowing the necessary uh, exchange of information um, and identification, but you know in a manner that's very focused on the mission, very focused on the drone, you know, while safeguarding uh, pilot and and drone uh, privacy issues, of course. One aspect of the plan is uh, it deals with approved detection equipment, mitigation equipment methods, and so forth. 
When it comes to approving the technology that could operate underneath the plan like this, what are the issues, Jeffrey? Do, do we have the technology in place, or is this uh, representing some technology that would need to be developed in order to satisfy these kinds of objectives? Well, uh, one of the very uh, encouraging elements of this plan is that, uh, like you're saying, they want to spotlight technology and list authorized uh, detection um, and ultimately mitigation equipment. But uh, what's really interesting this time is that they go out of their way to highlight equipment or technology that's going to avoid operational or communication uh, disruption of airspace, um, which is interesting because a lot of counter-UAS uh, technology originally came from the conventional military sphere, and it had its role, and it was very successful, and it accomplished its missions. But now you put that into a civilian environment um, uh, or a sensitive environment or a crowded environment, and it's and you have to really take into account very different factors. And I can uh, expand on that a little bit. So um, really focusing uh, to move beyond the shortcomings of the legacy detection technologies and encouraging, exactly like you say, encouraging innovation but with an emphasis on safety, an emphasis on control, uh, continuity, um, that stated need to avoid or minimize adverse impact on communications and on NAS, the National Airspace System, that's essential. And this exercise, from our point of view, should should really point to these next generation approaches with overcome these legacy uh, limitations. And and um, these again, traditional UAS detection, they've performed well. And they have a role to play in in kind of a layered defense, but but there's also drawbacks in sensitive and urban environments. So I'll give you a few examples. Radar, uh, obviously, the first example that pops to mind. Uh, it's known in in many cases to have a false positive problem. It may falsely identify a bird or another flying object as a drone and and trigger a whole alert process, which may you know may not be valid. That's on the radar side. Then more from a visionary optical solutions. Uh, they're ineffective without a clear line of sight, which is often the case in an urban environment with a lot of tall buildings or a hilly or mountainous terrain. Another technology is acoustic, um, sound-based, but that's uh, ineffective when you have a noisy environment or drones themselves are becoming quieter and quieter now. So the recommended technology list should kind of highlight and and emphasize detection uh, technologies that are fast and accurate uh, but without these false positives or without a line of sight requirement. Not that they can't, they can also have a role to play, but really this look for new technologies that overcome those. Now, that's, um, that's even more important on the mitigation side, um, you know, in addition to the detection side. And that's for more obvious reasons. Um, as with detection, the legacy technologies have, have shortcomings. Now, one of the most common methods of, of mitigation is jamming, various forms of jamming. Um, And jamming has serious drawbacks in some of these urban environments or sensitive environments. First of all, jamming is only temporary, which means if it's a hostile drone pilot, they can easily regain control after the jamming stops. In addition, and this is to the points raised on the plan, jamming can seriously disrupt communications and airspace operations uh, in the vicinity. So that's on the jamming side. The other method of uh, mitigation, of course, is even potentially more dangerous, which is anything kinetic, anything physical, anything shooting a projectile. Um, and that, you know, it could be shooting, a, you know, it could be a drone killing drone. It could be a net. It could be, 
a missile, an artillery, a laser, a magnetic field, all different kinds of things. But that obviously can cause uh, severe collateral damage. Whether or not it hits the drone, you have the projectile if it misses. You have the uh, drone if it gets hit, it's going to fall. And you have the projectile itself, regardless of whether it hits. So, so there's, the, there's a risk there of, of collateral damage. So one would think that they should um, highlight or especially encourage uh, next generation, new generation CUAS technologies, including, of course, you know, our point of view is, is smarter technologies, cyber-centric technologies that can disconnect, take over, take control of the drone, reprogram it to a safe landing, safe routing in a way that, you know, avoids operational disruption, avoids collateral damage, and, and allows for continuity. So that's kind of from a technology perspective. And it seems that in, in most cases, when we do have a rogue drone operating, it's in an environment where we want to uh, not disrupt other activities. It's at an airport or it's at a, um, a sports stadium or something like that, where the collateral damage, is, as you call it, could could be significant. And so avoiding that, I think, would be a terrific objective. Exactly right. How about the process for determining what the approved equipment would be? Is there anything in the plan that that suggests a, a process for approving equipment or technology? Not in a, a high degree of detail, um, other than uh, this actually refreshing focus or emphasis encouraging uh, of what um, what I mentioned earlier, which is technology that's going to avoid disruptions, avoid um, harming the airspace, avoid harming the communication spectrum. I mean, there's a very good, um, uh, you know, to use an old cliche, they also want to make sure that any cures are not worse than the disease. Um, so they want to uh, they want to make sure that any counter UAS in this kind of exactly the scenarios and use cases you presented do not cause more harm. In other words, they want to make sure that uh, the potential collateral damage of a of a counter UAS move is not more dangerous than the rogue drone itself. And so they have to find that right balance. And and if um, one would presumably think to your point about a process or a methodology, I know that there are. Uh, many trials and testing programs underway all the time by, uh, you know, the military and by um, the FAA uh, and by the TSA. And so um, there are a lot of these kind of pilot programs. So presumably they'll be able to leverage either a lot of those um, existing programs, some of which are alluded to in the plan, uh, or or they'll set up others for demonstration pilot programs uh, that can, you know, set up the criteria to uh, to to be uh, listed on on that technology list, Jeffrey. Um, one of the things that Max and I talked about last week, week when we talked to discuss this was to us it seems very clear that this is a really sensible, logical set of steps. But unfortunately, it's going to have to become a sort of political football. Do you see any of those challenges coming up? Um. Well, the good thing here is that it doesn't seem to be something that would be partisan in, in, in any way. I think, um, first of all, across uh, all um, political philosophies or uh, across the aisle, so to speak, um, I think everyone is seeing in their daily lives the wonderful benefits um, of drones. Um, it's affecting almost every single application, almost every single profession, including in, in things that are very tangible, 
uh, like healthcare, uh, like agriculture, commerce, obviously, uh, first responders, security, inspection, mapping. You guys are very familiar with the huge list of, of drone uh, commercial drone applications, not to mention the, the consumer side and, and hobbyists and things like that. So everyone, uh, I would hope, wants the emerging new drone society, new drone economy to flourish and prosper. And so I think there's a vested interest in, in all sides to um, safeguard that and ensure that. One thing we didn't, we didn't mention was um, the, the positive proliferation of drones and the crowded skies um, means that when you have the, the counter UAS measures that have to go through this uh, legislative process, um, that's an important uh, requirement. They need to be able to very quickly uh, distinguish between um, authorized, friendly, positive drones and uh, nefarious, unauthorized, disapproved uh, drones. So that'll be another part of the process um, to, to make sure that's uh, part of the technology, this, this, this kind of distinction, or being able to distinguish that rapidly. But back to your question, um, it seems uh, what's interesting now is that um, they've pulled together uh, involvement from multiple departments, whether it be defense, homeland security, Justice. It seems like uh, the plan has really engaged across departments uh, in a way to get the executive branch on board, and then on the legislative side, uh, you know, from a, a commerce and business point of view, from a public safety point of view, um, and people are just seeing incidents all around the world in the U.S., but not only in the U.S. and in, in the com- some of the conflict zones at airports. There's just so many incidents and. Uh, you know, being ahead of this and not having it triggered by, you know, a disaster or something, I think is very forward, very uh, positive. And um, there's really, I don't see why anyone would be opposed to most of this. It's very um, pro-drone, but it's also pro-defense against uh, potentially risky drones. Uh, So from a political point of view, I would hope it it has uh, kind of bipartisan consensus to, uh, to move forward. Yeah, we can be hopeful. Do we know anything about uh, how this plan was was put together? Was there stakeholder input outside of the government? Do we have any information? Um, well, there have certainly been um, lots of um, uh, the the counter drone the drone and counter drone community has has really uh, grown, expanded, and flourished. So there are so many. Uh, industry events and forums and conferences where this kind of thing is actively discussed between different stakeholders. Um, there's a, a couple of conferences coming up in D.C. where you have this you know, dialogue going on, this proper dialogue between uh, different players on the drone side, on the counter-drone side, and on the military side. So it seems to me uh, that to have taken into account a lot of the concerns that have been raised, uh, a lot of stakeholder input, um, that you know could have taken place in various official government hearings, and there have been uh, hearings on the Hill as it relates to the the threat of uh, of drones. Also, though, you know, at, at industry forums and conferences, there it's a very uh, active community, I would say, with a lot of um, opinions expressed. So um, it looks, at least at first glance, that uh, that this is a plan that has uh, you know spoken to the the users, the end users, as well as uh, industry itself and public safety, of course. It's interesting. We've Max and I have talked about this consistently about the fact for every for every UAS there's a CAUAS. Do you find that counter UAS and UAS are working together 
in cooperation or is it very an adversarial kind of back and forth? Certainly from a technology point of view, it is a uh, never-ending cat-and-mouse leapfrog uh, sort of game, as, as you're describing. Um, but actually, fr- from, a, uh, from the point of view uh, you know, of the industry itself, I think, and we've seen announcements from some of the drone manufacturers where they've you know, tried to implement either through licensing or through their technologies or through their policies, the misuse of drones. But ultimately, it's really technology that's going to safeguard it. So I, I wouldn't describe the, the relationship as adversarial, uh, but certainly you've raised a good point, which is the counter-UAS community always, I like to say, we, you know, our philosophy is we always have to stay a drone threat ahead. When we're developing our technology, we're not um, focused on the installed base of uh, legacy drones, those we will have already um, uh, captured, you know, in our in our technology base, basically to be able to counter those. But what we have to do for our clients is think about the next drone that's coming onto the market, the next, uh, you know, the next few years, the next uh, couple of years. Whether it be regardless of which make or manufacturer or drone protocol, we're constantly trying to stay a drone threat ahead to think about all the potentially bad actors or just accidental things that can happen. So there is, from a technology point of view, what you're saying, it is sort of a a cat and mouse leapfrog. But, um, uh, you know, from an industrial point of view, I think uh, a lot of the, the, the aerospace and defense and public safety, homeland security a solution provider community in general is all really about uh, safeguarding the the overall community. And um, a couple of other elements of the plan, the critical infrastructure, the focus on critical infrastructure and on uh, the incident tracking. Uh, just those are the, those are two other elements of the plan. Um, I think uh, you mentioned also in some of the stuff that you sent over to me prior to our call, this concept of enabling and placing uh, counter UAS equipment at critical infrastructure sites in advance, um, so that if you know uh, an incident were to occur, that the authorized, whether it be federal or maybe newly empowered state and local, could be there quickly. Because that's what that's the one environment. Also, we didn't mention earlier um, harbors, ports, um, airports, of course, energy plants, process industry manufacturing plants. Um, those are the environments where you really want to protect. So that's another really positive element of the plan is this you know, stimulation or encouragement of having counter-UAS equipment at, uh, at critical infrastructure plants. Um, and then finally, the, the one other thing that I think is most interesting is this concept of a UAS incident database. You know, that kind of tracking on an ongoing basis, that, that can really make a big contribution to better understanding the nature and changes uh, and trends that are happening with the threat. And what we're emphasizing, and we have our own incident tracker that your viewers can see on our on the resource center of our website, but those are just selected incidents, um, you know, based on, on public domain information, but it's still very interesting. Um, but this database has to track not only the obvious things like a date and location, but, but sector, use case, um, you know, was it an attack? Was it a collision? Was it an accident? And the drone make, the drone model, the protocol, those kind of things could be very, very interesting to see in this. It'll be very interesting to see how this database uh, plays And, out. of course, the FAA tracks the, the equivalent for uh, manned aviation. Uh, we, we don't question right. that, and we understand the value that that provides and the, the contribution to safety long-term that that provides. And so it seems to me that the same would would apply in, uh, in in the case of uncrewed or unmanned aircraft. 
Yeah, and I should point out the FAA has also been tracking uh, drone incidents in the vicinity of airports for quite a while. So there's been some uh, data built up, and this is really you know an expansion of that uh, more broadly beyond the the airport vicinity. Another element of the plan is the uh, the proposal to create a comprehensive criminal statute, and uh, that. Uh, is something I think it also needs to be done at a national level. You, you don't want penalties for misuse uh, of the airspace with uh, with UAS to, uh, you know, the penalty to vary by location or state or, or whatever. So uh, a, a criminal statute that uh, hopefully discourages bad behavior right. would, uh, would, would be beneficial to us all. And makes total sense. Now, I, I'm curious um, in terms of well, detection and mitigation, are different uh, technologies appropriate for uh, different environments? And what might those be? Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, like I was saying earlier, for example, the military sphere, the battlefield, uh, or a rural environment, you know, that, that, you know, things can be handled in one way. And that's where a lot of the technologies originally came from. Uh, Having said that, um, even in the military sector, uh, there's a growing awareness of the need for more control and more continuity. Uh, even there, uh, for example, you don't want technologies that are going to disrupt communications between units, or you don't want. Uh, you have to be careful of friendly fire when it comes to things like projectiles. And and actually, you know, on the military sphere, unlike um, you know when you're or we're dealing with conflicts, uh, there there's a whole other set of issues involving sometimes wanting to capture the drone. Uh, you know, for intelligence or forensic uh, work, you know, as opposed to, uh, and that's another area where we'll, it'll be interesting to see how the regulations unfold, where um, local authorities may not have the authority to seize a drone. However, um, and that's why you need, uh, to your point about technology, you really need multiple options. You need controlled outcomes. So, for example, in many cases, you may not want to uh, destroy the drone and you may not want to down the drone. You might just want to send it back where it came from. Uh, or cause it to hover in place and then send it back to where it came from if it's not seen as a, you know, a, a certain grade level threat, but it's you know a nuisance or something you want to keep away from a sensitive airspace. So that's what we call a fend off as opposed to a full mitigation. And you you want technologies to have that capability. So at the end of the day, you really want ca- uh, technologies that avoid uh, a lot of these issues that we've mentioned, like false positives, like sound de- dependency, um, and of course jamming that'll uh, disrupt the communications or operations and and of course the side effects of kinetics so so yeah you're exactly right but to your main question um, that's mostly appropriate in the most sensitive environments uh, urban environments environments where you have a lot of uh, crowds uh, environments where you know you have pop- exposed population uh, and there's where the new generation of technology really we basically say there's there's a couple of concepts the concept is safety focus, focus on the most dangerous drones. Um, and, and those kind of, you know, elements, uh, the future, like I mentioned before, not only worried about the drone threat of today, but the future. And then control. When you have a controlled outcome, we say the best way to take control of a dangerous drone situation is to literally take control of the drone itself. Uh, and land it safely. And we also, our point of view is that um, the focus should be on continuity, meaning make a incident become a non-incident. Ideally, if you can deal with it quietly and the game goes on or the event goes on or life goes on, transportation, communications, everyday life, whatever it is, if that can continue while you manage the incident, 
and it becomes a nonsense incident. People didn't even notice what happened. Uh, that's you know the ultimate success of of, um, of counter drone uh, technology. Jeffrey, what kind of training and specialization we're talking about taking it down to local levels? How much up training is there going to be needed to operate these systems for, say, a local police force? Is it going to be a just standard become standard tech for them, or is it going to have you're going to have to have a specialist in that police department or first responder unit, et cetera? Well, ideally, the technology would be um, simple enough that uh, that you could have you know multiple people being available to use it. Um, but there, you know, there will always be in the hierarchy the, the specialist, the one who's going. Even now, uh, in many uh, security agencies uh, that we work, there are counter UAS program managers, project managers, specialists. That they're the specialists, but they're not necessarily the only uh, end user. Uh, they, in turn, it's kind of a train the trainers. They become very fluent in counter UAS technology, but then they can train some of the uh, people in the field to also have that capability. And ideally, the technologies should be simple enough and automated enough and autonomous enough. And like I said, based on smart, cyber-centric, autonomous technologies, that they become easier to use and that the the operators can really focus on the threat itself and having the situational awareness and making those decisions um, concerning, you know, the, the, the pilot, concerning the drone itself, concerning the whole population, and be able to deal with all of these on a level. So the technology can't be uh, too complex. It has to be able to detect and mitigate and provide the right information so that um, the operators in the field can make fast decisions um, to, to detect and mitigate in the, in the proper way. So, uh, but there will be, to your question, there will definitely be, um, be training needed, but if the technology is right, the training can uh, proceed at a pretty rapid pace. Excellent. All right, one last question on the action plan, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, This would represent a lot of legislative changes in a lot of different areas, I think. Uh, Any thoughts on what the timeline is likely to be for for all of this? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a a political or legislative uh, analyst, um, so so I I certainly wouldn't want to put a time in, in... days or weeks or months or <laughs> whatever. But my, my sense is that there's a very high degree of, of urgency. I mean, the, the recommendations are relevant and timely. Uh, there's good mechanisms there to address the threat. Uh, there's good components that are promising in their capabilities. But basically, there are countermeasures here that rapidly address the rising uh, danger. So the whole point of it, um, of, of this White House uh, initiative, was was to kick off and, and, and drive and accelerate that process. I, I know that we've seen a high degree of awareness uh, and commitment on this on both Capitol Hill, and, both the White House and Capitol Hill. So um, I think, and, and going back to our earlier conversation, there's nothing partisan about it. This is just about public safety, homeland security, technology. There's, there's really not any reason to oppose it. The, the discussion and debate will be more on the nuances of how, you know, how to extend it or, or, you know, like you're saying, how to define certain things, more technical. Um, and there's a lot of resources aimed at this. And, and I think people see the incidents in the news all the time, uh, including in the current uh, conflicts around the globe. So um, we're hoping that it, uh, that it proceeds at an accelerated pace. That's too. Well, very good. Jeffrey, we'll give you an opportunity to uh, tell our listeners maybe if there's anything uh, new or exciting going on at Defense Solutions and also where they can go online to learn more about uh, the company and the, the products and services. 
from a company mission uh, and purpose uh, kind of point of view, even though we're a counter UAS company, we're very, very pro-drone. We realize the great value of drones, uh, but at the same time, they proliferate. So we want to safeguard uh, today's drone-powered society. Um, and we do that by what we call, what we promote is safe landings and safe outcomes. So our um, our flagship uh, technology is called Enforce Air, which you mentioned at the beginning of the show. And we basically detect, our technology detects, locates, and identifies the drones, and then helps to neutralize the threat by by allowing control and, and safe landings. And that's, that's really our whole approach, as I mentioned before, control, safety, and continuity. Um, we have a lot of great content on our website. We have an incident tracker uh, where you can see uh, all the, uh, all the, major incidents that have uh, been in the public domain. Uh, and we have lots of articles and, and white papers and other content about this uh, topic. Um, viewers can, or listeners can go to defensolutions.com. It's D with a hyphen, D hyphen fend, uh, F-E-N-D, defendsolutions.com. And from there they can, you know, contact, if there's any questions or they want uh, additional information, um, there's, there's forms on the website uh, that can be completed, and we're uh, pretty responsive. Uh, we're, we're, we view ourselves not only as a solution provider, uh, but we want to be an industry resource. We want to be a thought leader. Uh, we want to be a source of best practices in the whole counter-drone arena, bringing a next generation of counter-drone awareness in terms of you know, safety control and continuity, and we're very uh, proud of that contribution we make to safeguarding uh, the drone economy. Excellent. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I'm I'm sure our, sure. Uh, our audience is going to enjoy the, the conversation. Excellent. And thank you. So we want to thank you for listening to the UAV Digest. This has been episode 402. Our guest was Jeffrey Starr, CMO of Defend Solutions. We'll have the link to the website also in the show notes. You can find those at the uavdigest.com. And if you'd like to go straight to the show notes, that's the uavdigest.com slash 402. And, of course, you can find us on social media and on Twitter, on Facebook. Max and I are on LinkedIn. and Check us out there if you want to reach out to us on a professional basis. And, of course, you can join our Slack listener team. And you can join that conversation by sending us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com. Um, we, again, we'd like to thank Jeffrey. It was a great conversation. We hope to have you back sometime in the future. Talk more about the products themselves. But this is definitely um, a step forward. And it's, it's good to see that the community is moving forward with this. And it, it's something that's probably a little past due, but definitely looking forward to the conversation in the future. So I guess with that, I'm going to say this is David in Delaware. And Max in, where am I, Connecticut. Thanks for listening.